0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's about 10 seconds away from 4 o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time for 2019. Thank you for, to all who have kept the program going for the last four weeks. Today, Bishop George Browning's visit to Palestine and a positive result of the ALP conference on Palestine. Talk of a tale of two Saturdays. One was the 5th of January and one was the 12th of January featuring anti-fascist activists. The first at St Kilda Beach confronting self-proclaimed Nazis and The Second Rally at State Library with Debbie Brennan from PUSH. Review of Books for Your Summer Reading with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And finally, Dr Tim Anderson, currently suspended from his position as Senior Lecturer at the University of Sydney, explaining the Palestine Exemption. You didn't hear one in there, and that's Mr Kevin Healy Mr. Kevin Healy is off for another two weeks, so we'll just have to look forward to him coming back in February. The president of APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, former bishop of the Diocese of Canberra and Goulburn, George Browning, visited Palestine in the latter part of 2018 and returned in time to attend the AOP conference in December for the decision on supporting Palestine. George, was your visit a periodic one concerned with the Anglican Church or APAN or both?
2: Well, yes. It was a combination, really. I went as the president and APAN helped me with the trip. But I also went because I was invited to what's called a Kairos conference, which is a conference of church leaders globally, um, which was held in Bethlehem.
1: How many Christians are there still in the area where you went?
2: Well, in, in Bethlehem itself, there's still—I don't know, 10% or something. But the number overall is minute, and uh, it's said that there is now between 1 and 1.7% Christians in the whole of what used to be uh, Israel-Palestine, or the whole of the West, the whole of the Holy Land. Christians have been absolutely decimated by the occupation. Life has become so intolerable that migration has to become a serious option. For example, I went into the the Malachite church in Bethlehem and met the elder of the church, and fortunately he could speak some English, and his wife and children have already migrated to the UK. They live in London, and he's going this year. And he's very sad about that, but this is a church which actually still uses Aramean in, in its liturgy, the, the language of Jesus, so it's, it's incredibly sad really. I guess the reality is that Christians have more contacts in the Western world than Muslims do, so that the, the Christian population has had a, a significant migration out. How
1: did you find the situation there this time?
2: It's hard not to be depressed really because the Israeli occupation is becoming more and more severe. I I went to the military court watch to the Jordan's court just outside Ramallah the Israeli court and and met a few of the parents whose children are in the court for example I met a couple from Hebron whose young lad uh, 15 has been in has at that stage had been in custody for over a month uh, and he had thrown a stone and as his dad said he, he all he was doing at 15 was expressing his frustration about the occupation and how it's crippling their life. And uh, I asked him what message he had for the Western world, and he said, tell the world, tell the, tell the whole universe that the occupation is choking us, was his, his exact words. And the boy, when he appeared before the judge, he was, he was shackled, both legs and handcuffed in his arms, to, and there were four of them in a row. Uh, they were there for about, oh, I would say, under five minutes and the parents are over to the side and you can imagine glances between the two of them he was eventually handed a document which was written in Hebrew which he can't read and he was expected to sign it and then the whole thing was adjourned so he's back in custody again with no charge and he's 15 years old, he's shackled it's just terrible really
1: Have his parents had any contact with him in that past month?
2: I'd imagine they possibly do have mobile phone contact I couldn't say really um, but... Also, because life in custody is so difficult, uh, parents and friends have to do their best to provide finance to the children so that they get sufficient food or medicine or other requirements. And this is another thing that Israel really gives very bad press about because when money is given in that way, it's made out to be supporting terrorists or, or criminals. Where in, in reality, the money is used to make life bearable for people in custody.
1: Well, I would say for a 15-year-old, it wouldn't even be bearable.
2: Indeed. That's quite shocking, really. And what is even sadder, of course, it's become fairly normal for most Palestinian boys to be in that situation.
1: Have you had figures recently of how many Palestinian children are in jails in Israel? And they're not in Um, Palestine, are they? They're in jails in Israel. They're
2: they're in Israel, which makes it even more difficult and makes access by the the parents, like the the parents from Hebron. Getting work is hard. To take a day off or two days off is very expensive uh, as a lost opportunity. So the parents have got to go up. They don't know whether they're going to see their boy or not. They lose those wages. They've got to pay the cost of transport and food and maybe accommodation if they don't have somebody who can put them up, etc. It it is very, very difficult.
1: And the psychological impact on those children once they are
3: released?
2: Well, yes. It's also counterproductive because uh, at 15, it's ingraining into the child's mind that people are enemies, people are to be despised, etc., etc., etc. What really is required is somehow or another to have a program which indicates there is real hope for human rights where people will be treated equally and then the young lad will grow up with that hope and make a contribution but treating the the boy in this way just uh, reinforces the sense of occupation of being a prisoner of being deprived of rights
1: what did you see of increased settlement activity
2: the settlement activity is is continuing apace really and uh, it is particularly around Jerusalem and around Bethlehem. It, it is clear that this is not going to be reversed, that there is a process of annexation going on here. And uh, I don't know whether your listeners fully appreciate, but the West Bank is divided into areas A, B, and C. A, really, uh, is where uh, there is Palestinian control, so-called, uh, which is really restricted to the cities like Ramallah and Hebron and Jenin and Zababdeh, etc., Nablus area B is a combination of Palestinian and Israeli control and area C is completely under Israeli control and area C is about 60% of the West Bank and almost all of this you can see is being really annexed and uh, Palestinians I'd never get building permission Their life is made very difficult for them reasons are given for security which of course is absolute nonsense but it, it really means theft on a grand scale of Palestinian land and it's It's quite shocking, really, and the the international community should be far more outspoken about it.
1: were you told of any violent interactions between the settlers and the Palestinians?
2: Yes, there are, and almost all the boys who throw stones are, are throwing them within a radius of maybe 100 metres, 200 metres, less than a kilometre at the very most, maybe much less than that, a quarter of a kilometre from a settlement, because that's where the uh, the difficulty lies, that the settlers uh, are constantly harassing the Palestinians, and they're protected by the soldiers who just watch and think it's funny. So it's quite understandable that people get frustrated, and, and if you're young and you can throw a stone, you can uh, throw it and then run away. The boys who are arrested for throwing the stones, there is absolutely no guarantee that they are the ones who throw the stones, because they're not caught, and what happens is that informers in the village point out a house where there's likely to be a troublemaker, and so the Israeli armed forces arrive, and in the case of the boy I've just referred to, at 3 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the morning, break the door down, grab hold of the boy, and... Trust him into custody there is no um, certainty that the boy he may have but there's no certainty the boy did throw the stones and he in order for him to get out he then has to sign the paper to confess that he did when probably he even didn't
1: and also for those children the contrast between how those settlers are living and how they're forced to live
2: well yes when, when i was in hebron we passed a house that had been taken over uh, by uh, an illegal settler family in the last 24 hours. For generations it had, it had uh, held Palestinian family. And apparently there is some quirky law in Isra- in, that Israel uses that dates back a long way that if a house has nobody in it, then it's considered to be vacant. so Palestinians have to try to have somebody in their house 24 hours a day, and you know at least one person there, because if if it's empty, then um, it can be taken over. It's just disgraceful, really. And we came to this house, and there was a uh, a Jewish party going on, celebrating their taking of this particular house. Large sums of money are given to are offered to Palestinians to sell their houses, ridiculous amounts of money, and of course, for some, it is a temptation too great to to pass up but to most they just knock it back and we we had uh, lunch with a particular restaurant in in hebron overlooking the grand mosque and the tomb of the patriarchs and the jews are desperate to get this place and the, the owner has often been frequently been offered huge amounts of money to sell it and of course he won't we good on him he, he just won't do it
1: and also bribes to the settlers
2: to come and live there yes indeed indeed Um, i mean it's looked upon as being uh, a matter of pride uh, if they can do that and as you know israel passed a state law halfway through 2018 which had a number of components to it one was the recognition that israel is an undivided city um, that that arabic is no longer a, a a, nation, a language of the state, etc., etc., etc. But one of the other ingredients in it is that settlement building is part of Israeli culture or Israeli ethos. I've forgotten the exact words. But in other words, for people to be doing this is to be seen to be expressing their what it means to be an Israeli.
1: Were you told of any impacts yet of the pulling out of the U.S. money from the U.N.?
2: Yes. We were, and um, by the way, I, I'd like your listeners to know that uh, um, Australia has not followed suit, which mm. is terrific. And Anwar, which funds the refugees, it, it's complicated. But it there are Palestinian refugees within Palestine, the, like half of half of Gaza Strip are, are Palestinian are refugee settlements. But there are refugee settlements in, in Lebanon, and there are in in Jordan, and. Uh, Uh, There have been significant ones in Syria and Iraq. Uh, They've had to be displaced yet again. But in in Jordan, a refugee can gain Jordanian citizenship. But in Lebanon, not only can you not gain citizenship, you have no right. You can't own land. You you can't uh, access education. You can't access medicine. You can't access electricity. You can't access work. So unless there is some help given to these people, they uh, are reduced to... Well, at worst, they're reduced to criminal activity in order to survive. And uh, I spoke to a grandmother who's terrified that the situation, in actual fact, will lead to the radicalisation of her grandchildren. And I can understand what she meant by that. To withdraw funding for education, use that as a one example, is really leaving a vacuum which is just asking for radical groups to provide their own form of indoctrination of children and it's it really is a very counterproductive thing to be doing
1: what about the refugee camps in west bank
2: on this occasion i I didn't go to a refugee camp on the west bank but um they rely upon um monies from the pa and and of course from anwar but the same situation applies to them too that if legitimate resources are removed then you're really asking for illegitimate resources to take their place and uh, Hamas the extreme ring of Hamas would very gladly fill the gap if it could so people need to think much more carefully about the situation and if if one withdraws the support that is really a human right then um, people need to survive and they will look for resources in other ways and I don't think the Americans and Trump have thought this through very much.
1: I'm wondering if there's any evidence of the emboldenment of the soldiers in the settlements to the news that Trump already has moved the embassy to Jerusalem.
2: Well, he, he, has, he has moved it, and uh, of course his daughter and uh, some uh, Christian Zionist pastors from America were there for the opening.
1: Has that impacted?
2: Well, it, it, it does, and as you know following that there were riots and indeed to give some israeli progressives due they themselves demonstrated in the streets of tel aviv so his move was not universally applauded it it, if anything it it it, he's playing to his own domestic electorate and and in playing to his domestic electorate he's playing primarily i'm sad to say as an anchor bishop he's playing to the evangelical forty percent of whatever it is of america who are his his support base and uh, I, i'm beginning to understand that the majority of jews american jews who are almost as numerous as israeli jews seventy percent of them are democrat supporters and and they don't and there is a growing divide between american jews view of the world and israeli jews view of the world The support that Trump has is not necessarily from the Jewish community in America, although, of course, from parts of it he does get support and significant financial support, but it's actually from the evangelical Christians and and, uh, the Zionist Christians that he's actually playing to in in moving the embassy and the other things that he does. And also in the demonizing of Iran. That's a lot to do with, uh, with appealing to the evangelical Christian group in America.
1: Can you, in a few words, explain the position of the evangelical Christians and the Zionist Christians towards Israel? Why?
2: Well, it's a bizarre thing, Jan, and and, uh, your listeners will will, will find this all incomprehensible. In fact, I find it incomprehensible. It's a view that, um, supposedly from the Bible, and there's no evidence of it in the Bible whatsoever, that God intends, there to be a revival of Israel, so much to the extent that Israel is from the, the river to the sea, in other words, from Jordan to the Mediterranean, takes in the whole of what used to be Palestine, uh, in order that the rapture or the return of Jesus might happen. It's the most bizarre, bizarre doctrine. And the fact that so many in America believe it is beyond my comprehension. But that's the reality. You know, you, you would have thought that uh, the first thought of a Christian would be what is happening here with the poor? What is happening to the weak? What is happening with the oppressed? This is this is the message of Jesus. But no, they're, they're into control and into uh, uh, colonization which is basically what this is mm-hmm. of the whole of the of what used to be the Holy Land.
1: Can we talk now, George, about the Tamimi family? And for those unfamiliar with that family the resistance and activism goes back quite a while.
2: Oh, it does, yeah. The Tamimi family, they live in a little village, which is in areas that I've just described what that means, north of Ramallah. I got a taxi from Jerusalem uh, to their village. It took about an hour. They have quite a tradition in their family of resistance. Uh, Bassam, the father, has been in jail. I don't know. I suspect he's been more than once in jail. But it is very hard to describe to you and your listeners the feeling that I had when I went into their house. Some years ago... I had the privilege of meeting Shonana Gazmayo and I've, and I've had Desmond Tutu in my house for a week when I was bishop in Canberra. And to be with the Taminis was like being with Desmond Tutu or like being with Shonana Gazmayo. They have such dignity and such uh, peace about themselves and such uh, a sense of, of justice and righteousness they, they they don't hold any hatred or bitterness well, i mean this would be inferred to them by the israeli authorities but they don't hold it in fact their wish is that um the whole of what we might call pa- hold the holy land which is israel palestine gaza becomes an area in which jews and arabs ultimately all live together peacefully with the same rights, benefiting from each other's culture, benefiting from each other's gifts and capacities and talents, etc. That's their wish. They don't, they don't have any wish for Jews to be punished or to be made less of, but for everybody to share the same. Uh, I uh, was deeply honoured to be with them, I have to say, for a, a couple of hours. Uh, our head, the daughter, uh, jumped to prominence, Last year, your listeners, many of your listeners will remember seeing the picture of her when she was 15, slapping a soldier in the face. And she did it because he just shot her cousin in front of her and the soldiers were then about to enter the Tamimi house. She went to jail. There was a, a, a global campaign, Free Our Head, and eventually she was released. She's now, she's just left what we call secondary school and she's looking to improve her english uh, because i think a bit like malala a pakistani girl uh, she is destined to be uh, a spokesperson for a better world and to be an icon of of leadership in the world well i hope you'll come to australia soon I, and basama father reminded me that uh, when he tried to come to australia he, he did have a visa he got as far as uh, uh, Amman International Airport and then found his visa had been revoked and presumably because uh, the uh, people who are um, the lobby, the Israeli lobby in Australia had somehow convinced uh, um, Home Affairs and uh, etc. cetera to, to cancel his visa. It's a terrible thing, really. But anyway, but hopefully one or other or both of them will come sometime in the future. And if they do, we will be so much the, the richer for their presence.
1: Are there younger siblings there to take her place?
2: I'm not sure about that. I didn't see any younger siblings when I was in the House. I'm I'm pretty sure she's got a brother, but I'm not sure of any younger ones. No, I think she may be the youngest.
1: Just referring back to Morrison and the the Wentworth election, and he thought he might buy a few more Jewish votes by announcing that, were you surprised when he's retracted?
2: Not really, because... I knew that if he asked serious advice, people would have have told him this is the most bizarre, stupid thing he could possibly imagine, for a whole variety of reasons. He said um, initially that if he moved the embassy, it was on two criteria. One, it had to be in Australia's best interest, and two, it would have to further the peace process. Well, clearly it was not going to do either of them. So his advisors in the Department of Foreign Affairs and wherever else he got advice from must really had the job of extricating himself from the hole he dug for himself to do it with the minimum amount of egg on his face I think was basically the task they had Uh, and I'm not surprised that that happened.
1: You made sure you came back to Australia in time for the ALP conference? I did. And the result of the lobbying?
2: Well I think one of the things which people don't need to understand is that if there is to be peace in the, in the Middle East and peace in Palestine with Palestine-Israel, there has to be recognition that both have rights. Israel has rights, but Palestinians have rights. Uh, and at the moment, all the rights belong to Israel. Palestine doesn't have rights, and the, and the whole business of recognition is not so much recognizing a set of borders, they still have to be determined, although we know what they should be, and that is the 1966 borders, 67 borders. But it's so important to recognize that they have the right to exist. You, you know just recently that Australia played Palestine in the uh, Soccer Association. Your listeners may not be surprised to hear that a group of israeli supporters put pressure upon the football association to boycott that so that australia wouldn't pay palestine of course that didn't happen but every attempt is made to remove from the palestinians any right to exist so recognition is such an important thing as a step towards ultimate peace 130 something countries worldwide have recognized palestine and it's about time, Australia did, and at the, um, the Labour conference, I was delighted that if Labour becomes government, then presumably Penny Wong will become the Minister for Foreign Affairs, and she was the one who moved the motion, that if they form government, then the recognition of Palestine will become a priority for them.
1: We also need to recognise the efforts of Israel to stop Palestinian soccer players in the past. I believe a number of them were shot in the feet and shot in the leg, and some of them yes, will never or, walk again. or
2: prevented from from leaving at all by yes. simply with the visa situation. Yeah.
1: Busy year ahead for APEN
2: Yes, because while the situation in Palestine, Israel, you know, it's hard not sometimes to be not depressed but weighed down by it. But uh, I'm delighted that. APAN itself is growing from strength to strength. Our numbers are greatly increasing, and um, I know that we are respected as a a fair voice for justice and peace.
4: The Israeli
2: lobby does its best to characterize us as extreme, and and in the um, statement on on anti-Semitism in Australia put out by the Jewish Voices, They devoted about four pages to me. And uh, because they want any form of criticism of of Israel to be seen as anti Semitic. And uh, of course, any reasonable person would simply not accept that definition. Anti Semitism is one of the world's worst evils. Diminish anti Semitism by insisting that uh, the politics of resisting uh, Israeli oppression is some form of anti Semitism. It's really quite the reverse.
1: Thank you, George.
2: You're very
1: welcome, Jan. And that was Bishop George Browning from Canberra, who's the former Bishop of Canberra and Goulburn, Anglican Bishop, who's now the president and has been for a number of years now the president of APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network.
3: GCR are selling kefir.com. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. This is David
1: Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 8.55am in Melbourne, Australia.
4: Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.
1: For the past two Saturdays, what the corporate media likes to label left-wing radicals have been on the streets of Melbourne to oppose the racist views of the far-right element in our society. But the two events were strikingly different, as Debbie Brown from PUSH well, explain. Debbie, take us back to the 5th of January at the St Kilda Beach. What many people did not know, I'm sure at that time, was that was the day, was the 100th anniversary of the founding of a political party, which was to have devastating ramifications in coming decades. What do you believe the people who went that day knew about that day?
5: I think that... One thing that we're dealing with generally is that the understanding of the Nazi threat, there needs to be education about this, that the Nazis are not just a bunch of buffoons and clowns. They're not a game. They're serious. And that the 5th of January at St. Kilda just demonstrated that we do have to take the nazi threat seriously know what that threat is know how dangerous they are and cohere an anti-fascist movement
1: but did people actually know that it was the anniversary of the founding of the party
5: i believe that those of us who kind of know that history yeah we understood the The meaning of that I don't know if that was generally known
1: were you surprised at the antics of the far right on that day no no not at all
5: again when you know when you know how violent they are the fact that they declared that they were going to basically have a Cronulla number two you know on St Kilda Beach That's a very, very serious threat. And we also knew that we, the the police would be there in force, which they were, and the police are not there to protect us.
1: How did it go on that day? I wasn't in Melbourne on that day.
5: Well, the police were there in force. They were there with everything that we're used to, like the riot squads and the mounted police and so on but they also had the attack dogs they had their new weaponry they had their helicopter up above they had their um patrol boat on foreshore they were there in total total force so what happened was that we had a Apparently, we did outnumber them about two to one at the beginning or, or thereabouts. We had a good disciplined, you know, march toward where the fascists were hanging out. Um, of course, that meant that we had this huge police line. Um, we walked up to the police line, and but what happened afterwards is that it got quite confusing we ended up being kettled our side was kettled by the police and the police allowed the fascists to just roam around at will so that it was it was highly dangerous
1: just explain to people who don't know what the word kettle means
5: yes um to kettle means that what the police do is that they surround you so you are totally surrounded by police and you cannot get through
1: when you made the reference to Cronulla, a repeat of Cronulla,
5: mm.
1: are you talking about the fact that it was on the beach or are you talking about the fact that that beach is used by african youth to play soccer is that what happens
5: it would have been, well what what the fascists would have had in mind is that yeah reference to Cronulla um is the, the so-called Cronulla riots that happened um, quite some time ago when um, white far-right, including Nazis, claimed the beach, um, saying it was a beach for whites, that people of color, and up there in Cronulla in Sydney there um, is a large Lebanese Community and a general, you know, people of color community enjoying the beach like everybody else. So when the fascists here referred to a Cronella 2, they were making that clear reference that they were going to take the beach and remove Sudanese and basically any other people of color. But of course, they were zeroing in on the Sudanese Mainly because of the demonising of the Sudanese community by our state government as much as anything else.
1: And also the media? Absolutely. Well, one week on, there's a rally outside the state library by groups opposing racism. A different day?
5: Yes, it was a very different day. That day was, um, this is Just this past Saturday, it was organized by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. It was important, actually, to have that action because the Saturday prior was not a good day. as You know, a queer defeat of Nazis. We had to be out again mobilizing, so it was... um, a, a, you know, a pretty good turnout. What was good about sa- this past Saturday, the 12th of January, is that in this response to the Nazis, and by the way, I should mention that at St. Kilda, they were outwardly Nazi. They were doing the Sig Heils and so on. Nobody can make the mistake that they're anything but Nazis. So this past Saturday, there was a diverse crowd that came out to take a stand and say that Melbourne does not tolerate the presence of Nazis. What was particularly groundbreaking about this past Saturday is that the union movement mobilized. What happened was after St. Kilda, the ACTU put out a strong statement about the union movement and why the union movement stands up against nazis and what came out of that was that trades hall council actually, uh, promoted this past saturday particular unions were promoting it very heavily and so we had specific unions there with their flags like the National Union of Workers, the Independent Education Union, the Tertiary uh, Education Union, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, which were just some of them. And that was absolutely important for the unions to be coming out.
1: So this is a turning point
5: i think it is a turning point i think it's a very positive one that many of us in the anti-fascist movement over these years have been working very very hard and consistently to bring the union movement in because they're vital to cohering an anti-fascist movement in cohering a united front of organizations to work together against the fascists because Number one, unionists are made up of the very diverse targets of fascists. But secondly, the union movement itself is a prime target of fascism, as we know from history, because of its capacity to organize workers.
1: And it has to be consistent that you have these rallies.
5: Yes, it does have to be consistent. You're absolutely right, because it's it's not only important to be there consistently to counter and, you know, confront the fascist threat, but it's a buildup. We have to keep building up and bringing, you know, people need to have that ability to come in on that movement. By the way, the other good thing about that the rally, Melbourne Says No to Nazis this past Saturday, is the diversity of speakers. And I'll just mention a couple of speakers who struck me. One was Titan, who is a South Sudanese community activist and a musician. He was making a point that the Sudanese people, of course, they know they face a threat by being part of mobilizations against fascists um because the fascists of course are gunning for them he made the point that those of us who are not black there is a privilege there that we and he used that word to use that we must use that we we have a responsibility to do exactly what those of us who are out there every time are doing because it that important solidarity to be building that movement in solidarity with the Sudanese and all immigrants of color. I would add to that, by the way, though, that those of us who aren't black are also, however, targets of fascists um, because fascists, of course, have a very broad agenda. There is another speaker, Sylvie Lieber, for Jews for uh, Refugees, She did an important thing in her speech of bringing back that history, and she referred back to her grandparents in Germany, the the history of what happened in Germany, and it's so important for us to be very clear on what happened 70 years ago and to hear it from the mouths of descendants, because that tells us so graphically what fascism actually is and it isn't something to take lightly it's something to take and mobilize to stop very very seriously
1: just finally debbie what i would call the mealy mouth response by the particularly the the coalition politicians to the 5th of january rally yes
5: well i mean something of course that happened on the 5th of January was that um, the Queensland Senator, Fraser Anning, came to the fascist rally. He was there among them. He was right there with them. The mealy-mouthed behavior of the mainstream politicians in parliament have contributed so much to the threat, to the build-up of the threat. In fact, I think as many of us have said many, many times over these past few years is that it's really from Parliament that um, the ground has been laid for the fascists to be able to pick up on the Islamophobia, the general, you know, targeted racism, and also the demonizing of women, particularly women on welfare, First Nations, refugees, and so on. That has to be confronted. Just It absolutely has to be confronted. I think this brings me back to the importance that's becoming clearer to people about what we can do and what we need to do. I was there with the United Front effort called PUSH, push organizing and educating for a united front against fascism and the united front is a very special and powerful way of organizing because it's coming together of diverse organizations and individuals who may have political views on all sorts of things but we come together around agreed points of unity that is the most powerful weapon that we have got to defeat the fascist threat. I kept thinking at St. Kilda that if there were a broad united front already coalesced with the union movement in it, St. Kilda would have looked very, very different. And I think that this past Saturday to see the unions coming on board, beginning to come on board, that we saw the potential of that.
1: And how do people get in touch to know what events are on?
5: Push has a Facebook page, which is antifascist.push. We have an email address, which is antifascist.push at gmail.com. We would love to have people get in touch with us. And just to let listeners know that PUSH is going to have a contingent on Invasion Day, January 26th. If anybody wants to go march with us, definitely get in touch with us because it's time that we all get together and start building this united front. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks a lot, Jan.
1: And that's Debbie Brennan from... Bush speaking about the two very different rallies one on the fifth of January and the second on the twelfth of January. And as she said, the people will be out again in two Saturdays time for the Invasion Day rally. I believe they're meeting at half past ten at Parliament House. I'm pretty sure I've got that right. But I know it is ten thirty in the morning, so watch out for that one. Say I am I am sailing on the, seas, the Water. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty, and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. Jail, all because they living hell. Another first for 2019 a catch-up on events impacting on the people of Western Sahara, the only remaining colony in Africa. Morocco is the repressive and brutal coloniser and to anyone who voices their desire for independence. Kate Lewis has been working for and with the people of Western Sahara for many years, first in England and later here in Australia. So, good afternoon, Kate, and let's begin with the on and off peace talks. The latest session began in early December for a couple of days. Who actually takes part in these peace talks?
3: That's right. The, well, the UN is represented, of course, with the uh, personal envoy of the Secretary-General, Horst Koehler, who's organised the talks. But the two neighbouring states, namely Algeria and Mauritania, uh, also party to the talks.
1: And what happened in those three
3: days? I'm afraid I don't really know exactly what happened, but the outcome was that they said they would meet again. In the long and interesting story written for the New Yorker by Nicholas Nyakos, he describes that, uh, how they tried to get a friendly atmosphere going by introducing the two parties at the end of the first day of talks to the swiss fondue they didn't know how to make it and they had to get instructed on how to get you get bread on the end of your fork and you dip it in a, a cheese sauce so that was a kind of a icebreaker if you like and communicating with each other just on a social level because in the past there's been very icy cold relations between the two sides the Moroccans have done all kinds of silly tricks and generally been very antagonistic towards having proper meeting, create a more cooperative and collaborative kind of friendly talks. What
1: what does the UN say about this issue? Because it's the last colony in Africa. There has to be a resolution at some
3: stage, doesn't there? Exactly, there must be. I mean, it, it. Minerso, the UN mission that was set up to organise this referendum of self-determination in 1991, has been going on too long. It's actually the American side, in particular, foreign affairs adviser to Donald Trump called uh, John Bolton, who is very keen to wrap up the the mission. He thinks it's a terrible waste of UN money to have the mission just sitting around maintaining the status quo. And he's formerly from the UN, isn't he? Well, he was working with James Baker in the earlier stage of peace negotiations back in uh, the 1990s. That's when he went to Morocco, he went to Western Sahara, got to know the people on both sides of the dispute. So he does feel much more personally involved. He says that uh, it makes him very impatient when he thinks about it.
1: And also when you think about Algeria, they've had the refugee camps on their
3: land for decades now. That's right. And the, and, uh, the Sahrawis never want it said because they want to be able to say that they'll hold it out for as long as it takes but it's actually not, it's getting less and less viable there. The groundwater sources are not only sort of running out, but they might be getting it contaminated. All sides really agree that it needs to finish, and and even Hoss Köhler said that. Unfortunately, it does suit the Moroccans to, sometimes it suits them to let it just meander on in its way, but what they really want is to, Allow the occupation, as somebody said, to morph into, or even Bolton said this, they want it to morph into part of Morocco without there really being any formal process. You know, they don't want to have to acknowledge the actual situation. Nobody can let that happen. Somehow it's got to be presented to them that it's in, to their advantage to have a proper resolution. And of course
1: the relationship between the governments of Morocco and Algeria
3: aren't exactly warm. That's right. They always like to frame the whole thing as a problem with Algeria, not with the Polisario Front, the Western Sahara's spokesman. That's, in terms of the, of Western Sahara, the whole position with Algeria is a side issue. It may be real, but it's, it's, that's got to be separately Resolved really
1: And the issue that we talk about a lot Is the, the resources of um, Western Sahara That are being stolen by Morocco There's been conferences in Europe In recent times, late like last year
3: A UCOCO conference European Solidarity Movement For Supporting the Sahrawi People They had a conference in Madrid Definitely that's one of the main themes Is finding a way to stop the exploitation of the resources, unless the Sahrawi people consent to it. If they can find a way for the Sahrawis to consent, then there should be no problem. But then Moroccans like to pretend that it it wasn't ever a problem.
1: But some of the European states are determined to take those resources, even though there's been decisions
3: by a fairly high court in Europe to say, this has got to stop. Indeed, it's and it, I believe it's the highest court in the European justice system. They said quite categorically Western Sahara is not part of Morocco and so any trade agreement made with Morocco should not include Western Sahara. Right now, European Parliament will be voting on one of those trade agreements. There's a lot of shenanigans going on behind the scenes and and even in broad daylight, so to speak. Commission said that there would be no debate about one of these agreements. They would just sign it. There's been an outcry about that as well.
1: And it's a very lucrative trade, isn't it?
3: Particularly the the fish for the Europeans. Spanish in particular have got most of the licences that would be made available through this agreement. Fish and seafood is a basic part of the Spanish cuisine, asking them, To give up that fishing ground is like asking them to change their whole gastronomic culture, if you like. But that's the resources that belong to the people of Western Sahara. Exactly, exactly. In my personal view, it's a radical reassessment that the whole world has to make about the inclusion of of fishing products in their diet because of the actual supply depletion of the fish stocks all around the world.
1: Go back to 2009, Kate, and there was a protest camp in Western Sahara. The result was harsh prison sentences for a number of activists, some of them who weren't even there. And the treatment of those men since then has been incredibly harsh. And that sort of epitomises the the mood of the Moroccan regime determined to punish and punish anyone who dares put their head up.
3: Exactly. These People were, well, they were singled out as the ringleaders of this protest camp. It was a huge movement. It was an amazing thing that happened. There was thousands and thousands of Sahadawis who went out, walked out of the cities and camped in the desert for a while, for some weeks, they actually really had a good time and they were able to feel free and engage in their own culture and Older people could teach children games and uh, all kinds of things to do with their their culture, maybe poems and songs, and they got it beautifully organised. It was extraordinary, really, that it was all happening completely impromptu, but people kind of emerged and made sure that the tents were arranged properly and that supplies brought off of water and bread and supply, uh, other food supplies... And it was all beautifully done But the Moroccans were needless to say very uneasy They sent surveillance helicopters to watch what was happening Got security vehicles making a kind of roadblock So that everyone coming in had to pass through this roadblock There was one fatality when a car drove through anyway Of a young boy sitting in the back of a utility The tensions sort of started building and then While they were talking, because the grievances that they were protesting about initially was not about getting Western Sahara back, having a vote of self-determination or anything like that. It was about jobs and housing and their social needs in the community because they felt that they were being discriminated against in their own country. They were second-class citizens, Moroccan settlers, who'd come down, been brought down, were getting the jobs, were getting good housing, being privileged in very many ways. There were negotiations taking place between the different authorities and the ad hoc committee from the protest camp. But just as these were reaching a sort of more or less satisfactory conclusion, I've still not ever understood exactly who commanded this or where it came from but suddenly they decided they were going to move in disbanded the camp very brutally they had a hot water cannon and it's hard to know quite what happened but we think that uh, you know they set fire to tents then of course once you've got fire going and these people have all got their little camping gas burners there's explosions going off all over the camp, so it's hard to know whether any of those explosions were intentional or they were accidental. But the result of it was that the camp was disbanded. There was a sort of riot took place in the city. As soon as they heard what was going on, another person or two died there. And some of the Moroccan auxiliary workers in the fire service or something like that, they also died in this conflict, although it's never been properly documented. But those deaths were the ones that the accused, Saharawis were accused of uh, causing. were convicted in a court without any evidence. There was some kind of blurry video shown that didn't identify any of the victims. It didn't associate any of the victims with any of the accused. But the court was corrupt so it accepted that evidence and they got ridiculous sentences ranging from 20 years to life imprisonment 25 i think originally accused Uh, one of them was acknowledged as wrongly implicated and he was let off but only after two years in prison another one had actually already absconded and gone to uh Spain but he was sort of accused in absentia and I think there was perhaps two others that were given uh, short sentences so there's something like 22 or you know round about 20, 22, 21, 22 numbers always seem to change a bit who are presently in prison. During that period they had all been in the same prison so although it was unjust and uncomfortable they at least had sort of solidarity among themselves visitors could come and see them all human rights workers could visit them as well as family visits. and the Sahrawis organised a house in um, El Ayun where people could come to because it's thousands of kilometres away they could stay there and visit their relatives. There was an appeal and, and yes during the time it took to have an appeal, there was an appeal. At this time there was hope that the retrial would give the authorities the opportunity to reduce the ridiculous sentences, maybe acquit a few people, having made their point that they would back down, but there was none of that. They just reaffirmed all the sentences, even though the International Committee on Torture had presented evidence I think it might have been ruled out of court. They then made it worse by dispersing the prisoners into um, about, I don't know, a dozen different jails all around Morocco, most of them further away than where they were already, and making it even more difficult. At first, even people didn't know where their relative had gone. Some of them are slightly closer than at Agadir, and that's where one of the life sentence prisoners, is at the moment. He's called Sid Ahmed Lemsied. I met him, actually, at one of these Yucoco conferences in Barcelona in 2009, uh, where he came to give evidence about the information he had on the phosphate exports and other information. I also met his sister when I visited in 2013 and he's not well he's got a lot of serious medical issues his relatives recently came to visit him they were turned away they weren't allowed to see him so it's getting worse and there are other cases of visitors not being allowed to visit their their relatives
1: and i believe he's in solitary confinement
3: now quite sure about him the other one the uh, Mohammed talil He is the one who was put in solitary confinement for 45 days and following that his health deteriorated a lot. They were very concerned that he wasn't getting his medication. I think he might, a lot of them are diabetic, have conditions like that that need constant medication. They're being persecuted worse than just being in prison now. And human
1: rights observers can't get in to see them, is that correct?
3: And they can't get to into the country at all to observe and report or reporters can't get into the country to report what's going on. they get turned back at the at the border. in one case they got through and were meeting people, then uh, they were discovered and they were expelled at that point. Maybe Morocco trying to express the fact that they are feeling pressure and they are just not going to relent
1: disturbing news too about the arrest of a young journalist we saw the film rifles or graffiti and was she part of that
3: film she was she was the one at the very opening sequence of the film she's uh writing uh, something like sahara libre on a wall with a spray can and she later gets interviewed and speaks her name is nasra el Khalidi. And she's been arrested before in 2016. She got arrested and interrogated and held for a period and um, her camera was confiscated and never returned. She wasn't held for very long. She wasn't held overnight, I think. But um, it's nevertheless, it's clearly um, a warning sign that they're, they're trying to silence the, 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 the people who would speak about the voices that would uh, let the world know what's going on.
1: But however hard they try to suppress these young people who are fighting for their independence, they're not going to silence them.
3: It makes them more determined, and, and that's, the, uh, that's the ironic thing, that they think they're going to silence them, but they actually make them much more determined. And just as you said before,
1: you can't get into the occupied territories if, if the authorities sense that you're there to support the people of Western Sahara.
3: That's right. If you've got any kind of background in human rights or organisations that would support the Sahrawis. The one thing, when, when I went there in two, 2013, they weren't interested. I could have been bringing in drugs. I could have been bringing in all kinds of illicit things really made a fuss about was a business card that had a sahabi flag on it those were all confiscated also didn't like maps that showed the border between morocco and western sahara one of our number had educational material for schools and it had a, a, a map with the border shown and she said well i didn't put that it's the international border and it's a Catholic organisation that gave me these uh, books to give to the children. And I can't remember whether she got them through or not, but um, they were not happy with any of that. They liked to keep the mythology going. Referring back to this very interesting article by uh, Nicholas uh, Niakos, he travelled to the Canary Islands and met Tu Haidar there because she could travel there relatively easily and he could travel there because it's just part of Spain and, and that's a bit of a halfway house I suppose but but generally speaking it's it's very difficult to, to get into the occupied territory I know one person who did it for her uh, PhD research but the first time she was going to attend a women's conference and she was and her colleague were turned back the second time she did a real cloak-and-dagger thing where somebody brought her in, literally undercover, I think, you know, with a, with a melfa on, and she was just secreted into a house and people were brought to meet her there. She did her interviews without moving around at all.
1: And your friend in the Canary Islands has paid a very heavy price for her activism.
3: Aminatu Haidar, indeed, she has... And she also managed to travel to, uh, I mean, her health has been seriously compromised from both from her initial incarceration when she was in her 20s, held in a um, blindfold for many, many weeks and months, and it seems to have permanently damaged her eyesight. And then more recently she went on a long hunger strike and that has weakened her as well. But she's, she managed to travel to the, a, a north-eastern part of the berm, of, of the military wall that separates occupied Western Sahara from the liberated zone, while the Moroccans are doing all these sort of harsh things to try and show we're not giving up, we're not giving in. The have been trying to do goodwill actions, and one of their goodwill things is in keeping with having signed a Geneva Call, I think it's called. It's a uh, international pact to give up landmines. Every year they uh, detonate any landmines that they've been able that they've been able to collect from the demining or sources that they might have had of their own. Their last stock of landmines was destroyed very recently in, in a place called Meharis, that is quite. Close to Tifariti, which some Australians have been to. It's between uh, Tindouf and Samara in Western Sahara, Tindouf in southwest of Algeria, uh, that, right up there. Uh, and then the Moroccan ambassador to the UN wrote and complained to the UN that the ceasefire had been broken because there were all these explosions. Secretary General's uh, spokes person at the daily press briefing was asked a question about it and he said no we had un personnel present uh, on on this occasion and and there was no breach of the ceasefire
1: who laid
3: the landmines over the period and over what area are they still there oh there's a, a estimated between 7 and 9 million uh, landmines still there 7 was the uh, UN, the 9 million was the Norwegian NGO that is educating people about how to avoid them and that safety around landmines. Mm -hmm. They're all along this military wall that stretches from one end of the country to the other from north to south and then it runs east to west on the southern border. the, the, The wall was actually built in a series of stages there there are like little offshoots of the wall as well as the, it's not just one line and so there's a minefield on each side because the wall itself is not enormous It's it might only be a couple of metres high in some places it's called a sand wall or a berm but there's barbed wire and there's radar and there's dogs and there's landmines it is a very intimidating barrier between the occupied part and the unoccupied part of Western Sahara will take a long time to to recover all that territory and make it safe.
1: Finally, Kate, the ALP resolution on Western Sahara back in December
3: in Adelaide. Yes, that was a very encouraging move. It was regarded as a big victory really for those supporting it because there were a lot of other motions contending uh, for approval and it was excellent that they were able to reaffirm and and even uh, strengthen the res- resolution that they'd made at the previous conference
1: and i was speaking there with kate lewis from the australian western sahara association and if you'd like to find out more or get involved i haven't got the exact Addresses, but it's the Australia Western Sahara Association, and there is a web page and there is a Facebook page to contact them. They're always looking for more people to spread the word and to get involved in the push for self determination for the people of Western Sahara. As we said in that interview, the last colony in Africa. The time at 3CR is coming up to.
4: Let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
1: The first session for 2019 with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network and something a little different for this one. I asked Bob to focus on books he's been reading recently and could recommend to our listeners Focusing on science, the environment and issues such as that. And the first one he's chosen is by veteran journalist Carrie Gillam, Whitewash. And she was actually in Australia late last year.
0: That's right. Carrie Gillam was uh, at the uh, Bendigo Writers Festival last August, I think it was. Her book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer. Cancer and the corruption of science is a great read. I mean, it's fascinating, readable. Story of power, politics, and the deadly consequences of corporate interests being put ahead of the public safety, particularly in relation to Roundup, the herbicide which we now know is a carcinogen. Monsanto hid the evidence for a long, long time. It had a history of poisoning people, and of course, it. Uh, claimed that Roundup, the herbicide, was safe enough to drink, so people were using it without appropriate precautions. Uh, Meanwhile, the company was using the revolving door of regulation in the USA, where uh, some of its executives would go backwards and forwards between the company and the regulatory bodies to make sure that the dangers were covered up. And it's only over the last 12 months that the whole... Sorry, business has become revealed as Kerry Gillum, the author of this great book, Whitewash, has gone systematically now to uncover the truth about how Monsanto fixed the data, got tame scientists to put um, their names to articles and scientific papers that the company itself had written, generally uh, hid the fact that this toxic weed killer that leaves residues on our dinner plates in the air we breathe uh, in the water, soil, and even in our own bodies through ingesting it from food residues is having damaging effect both on the environment and on public health.
1: Are you aware of the reaction to this book?
0: Well, it's been pretty huge, I think. Certainly, say, in the comments about it, Erin Brockovich, who, of course, is uh, well-known now as a consumer advocate, I think rightly says whitewash reads like a mystery novel. Kerry Gillum, of course, had... Um, 25 years experience of reporting and a good deal of that was on agriculture and the chemical industry and it was only when the whole thing started to unravel that all the evidence came out and she joined a group called US Right to Know which put a lot of freedom of information requests onto the company and onto the researchers who were working in universities on behalf of the company and found these corporate research connections so the corruption of science is very much a part of the book. Of course, it's been very influential in the outcome of the first case in which uh, Dwayne Johnson was awarded $289 million against Monsanto last year, which was su- subsequently wound back to $78 million, but was still a very good settlement for um, Mr Johnson's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, of which he is um, suffering and is likely to die fairly soon.
1: Next, Bob, two books by Israeli historian and uh, professor at the Department of History at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem.
0: Yuval Harari is an incredibly interesting professor of history and writes very, very accessible books, I think. Um, They're readable. They're so wide-ranging that um, you're getting your head around The scope of what he's talking about is somewhat hard, but the first of the two books I wanted to mention is Sapiens, which, of course, is about humans, a brief history of humankind, how we emerged on the uh, tree of life, um, how we've basically conquered the world with 7 billion of us now inhabiting the planet, and that likely to increase over the coming decades. Where did we come from? Something like 100,000 years ago, there were actually six separate species of human beings inhabiting the Earth. But today, there's only one, the Homo sapiens, which is us. So we not only conquered the Earth, but uh, also other species of humans that were our rivals. And I suppose the Neanderthals are the best known of those. And indeed, modern genetics is now discovering that uh, human beings uh, have um, a fair bit of Neanderthal DNA in their makeup as well one of the interesting aspects of us coming to conquer the world what really has led to our dominance to the fact that we are now in the situation of being the most absolutely dominant species in the world going from foraging ancestors thousands of years ago to the highly sophisticated animals that we now are we're uh, extinguishing the other creatures on the earth so we might soon be (laughs) the only ones left standing. When we disappear in due course, of course, uh, nature will regenerate itself, and who knows what the future holds in the way of new plants, animals and microorganisms that will inhabit the earth that we have conquered. He's looking at insights from biology, anthropology, paleontology, economics and a whole range of other disciplines, combining all those understandings and knowledge from the past to write a short history of humankind and it really is fascinating and engaging and makes you wonder whether because we've been such a destructive species from the beginning whether we can actually change our ways now you no know, despite all the good intentions to stop the extinction of species which is going on a pace to make the earth into a place that we can continue to inhabit despite global climate change which we ourselves are causing it may be that Our um, hubris, our religions, our way of thinking about the world has led us to the um, situation that we're in now, which makes us um, such a destructive creature.
1: But despite all that, he's written a brief history of tomorrow.
0: Yes, sure, trying to scope out where we're headed. It's not too bright a uh, prospect, really, but his thinking is extremely original. The book is compelling and provocative, and this uh, second book is called Homo Deus. A Brief History of Tomorrow by Yuval Harari. Homer Deus, of course, is humans as gods, is trying to explain what the consequence of our conception of ourselves as entitled to have dominion over the world, which has led us to the situation we're in now. We've created religions, economic systems, a whole range of esoteric things by which we run the world. It's led us to the current. Crises that we now have. Now, will they be solved? Who really knows? But he is trying to scope out what the evidence now is for the direction that we'll go in. The famines and the plagues and the wars of the past are reduced. I mean, yes, there are less starving people in the world. We've conquered diseases. Uh, we make war on each other less, we hope, in the 21st century than the incredibly huge and destructive wars of the 20th century. Where are we now headed? What are are the ventures that we're now engaged in? projects, the dreams and the nightmares that are going to shape this century and following centuries. What are they going to be? We see, for instance, a whole movement for the convergence of humans with um, various kinds of machines and other technologies. Will humans, as we know them now, actually survive this convergence or will we become genuinely bionic where we actually are um, not only organic but partly machines and converge with robots and electronics and other things so this is a visionary trending exercise trying to see where we're headed at the moment from our current status situation where we're other extreme threat particularly from global climate change and our destruction of the environment
1: well another book on that theme is the sixth Extinction: and Unnatural History by Elizabeth Colbert. She writes that mass extinction may be a morbid topic, but it's also fascinating.
0: Yes, and it is indeed. The way she writes it, of course, makes it extremely readable. But in the end, of course, the finger is still pointing at human beings as the destroyers of the environment, making our many parts of our um, of our world uninhabitable, and we just need to do better. We can't. From here on, the business as usual, you know, we are now aware that there have been um, five previous extinctions, of course. The dinosaurs and various other epochs of uh, dominance by other creatures in the world have um, gone the way of the asteroids hitting the world, for example, which extinguished the dinosaurs and various other dominant species have disappeared over time as well. And are we headed for the same kind of extinction ourselves? Very probably we are. However, in this case, we are the culprits. We are the ones who are actually driving global processes in the direction of making this world uninhabitable for human beings. And so this is a wake-up call, as the Ferrari book is, for the fact that we need some revolutionary thinking about where we are, where we're headed, because we're headed into a pretty nasty place if we're not careful. Certain critical uh, things like oil, phosphates and a number of other really critical things for the way we do business at the moment, for example produce our food, are um, depleting very rapidly as a result of the way our civilization is structured. If oil, for instance, runs out, we will see um, potentially mass starvation, a huge number of industries that we now appear to depend on like plastics, pharmaceuticals, fertilisers and pesticides for food production, for example, may simply become unavailable because the material that's used to create these things, like phosphates, for instance, in the case of synthetic fertilisers for industrial agriculture, will simply not be available. So if we are to survive as a species and if the world is to continue to be habitable, then we need now to start thinking about how do we transition to genuinely sustainable environmentally friendly and low-impact solutions so for instance um, oil runs out we can't run cars anymore are we really going to pretend we're going to run things like aeroplanes or the cars on electricity or some other mode of um, fuel it's just not imaginable at the moment and whether this can happen uh, in the future is very questionable as well so we need plan b and we need to start inventing Plan B now and seeing how we can transition to new systems of organising ourselves, of running our civilisation.
1: Is the book by Andrew Lee, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World, also a wake-up call?
0: Well, it is. It's, um, it's more a book, though, about how we do business, particularly the business of science, because, um, as he points out, most scientific experimentation and their results are actually not, are not true. So <laughs> a lot of the stuff that we um, base public decisions on and the way that we organise ourselves, we are a scientific and technological civilisation, and yet the means of producing the information on which that um, structure, or those systems and structures are based, is uh, in many ways very shonky. So Andrew Lee, who's an interesting guy, he's a former professor of economics at ANU and is now a Labor member of Parliament from the ACT, has written a very fascinating book about random trials. That's to say, when you do an experiment, you should have a control group, of course, so that you can see that your experimental group has actually either benefited or not benefited from the changes that you've made during or as your experiment is, is conducted. And the way of allocating people or animals or areas where you're doing your experiment to either the control group or the experimental group should be randomised, he's arguing. That randomization is the critical factor in ensuring that the results you get actually have some truth to them. In building evidence and breaking down the myths of the way that we do things it's important that you go through this process and of course adding to that in medical experimentation you're supposed to also do double-blind experiments so that um, the experimenter doesn't actually ever know who is assigned either to the control or experimental group things need to be done differently because most of the time particularly in corporate science the whole thing is fudged and the results are uh, unreliable and serve the interests of corporations rather than the interests of honesty and truth. And this, of course, this um, randomization
5: has been around
0: for several centuries, but it's mostly observed in, um, in not being applied rather than being used. Lee goes back to very early experiments. He gives a very good account of... 17th century experiments about the problem of scurvy on long-distance boat journeys. Uh, Scurvy, of course, was a disease which killed or certainly made very sick uh, many of the people, for instance, who were brought to Australia, either as convicts or as the crew of the many ships that came at that time. It fell to um, some smart people at the time to run some experiments using control groups and experimental groups to find out that the secret was that um, scurvy was actually vitamin c deficiency by giving your um, experimental group lemon lime or orange juice you could actually solve the problem of scurvy but of course the results weren't believed for another half a century when they were finally brought into effect by the british navy they were very influential because the people that they were waging war against the french and the spanish who were colonising the world as well. We still suffered from scurvy while the British were um, feeling a lot better and were able to fight the battle more efficiently as well. That's where he begins. And then he works through a whole range of randomised and non-randomised trials to show that in things like public policy to do with education, medicine, economics, everything we do really, that the evidence on which we base our decisions about allocating resources in education, health care and so on, are often unfortunately based on prejudices rather than well-founded facts. He becomes an advocate really for doing things better, for making sure that when you're going to make a public policy decision about something like education, that you've done real research, that you really know whether what you propose to do is going to have the effect that um, that you want, and that other things like... Inertia, self-interest and money are not intruding into the picture and corrupting the programs that are being put in place by our governments and by our other institutions.
1: You've also been reading a book by Alfred McCoy. For those who might not know who he is?
0: McCoy is um, a historian as well, interestingly, an American one, and he's been writing now for the last 50 years on um, the American secret state. His original work was actually on the involvement of the CIA and um, other secret services in the USA in the drug trade in Asia during the uh, Vietnam and Korean wars. And, of course, there was big money there, and um, this was how a lot of those wars were um, funded at the time. Now he's written this very engaging book, I think, um, last year in the shadows of the American century the rise and decline of US global power in which he sets out really a lot of information and evidence about the American secret state and its operations it fits in with a book that I've also been reading about Ed Snowden we found out a lot about um, how the Americans gather and use surveillance um, have been doing so since the 19th century when they colonized the Philippines and other parts of the world to set up what really became the American Empire America for instance has 800 military bases around the world two and a half million people under arms globally it's still a real powerhouse of um, military might but the thing is that it's now declining economically and the whole situation is pretty unsustainable but both the Ed Snowden book by Luke Harding which um, catalogues the exposures that um, the revelations that um, Edward Snowden made about uh, the monitoring of the communications worldwide by the Americans because most of our communications in fact go through servers in the USA. The secret services there have uh, conveniently linked into the undersea cables that carry most of those communications whether they're telephone, internet, photographs, you name it, the Americans can hoover it up and collect the data. And Alfred McCoy's account of the rise and decline of US global power, which is based has been based from its beginnings in the 19th century on surveillance, torture, assassination and the use of covert information gathering. These trends continue even though the whistle has been blown, the Americans are still gathering that information. Of course, now they're accusing others, like the Russians, for instance, of uh, influencing the American elections. But meanwhile, we need to recall that The Americans have been doing the same, you know, installing the Shah of Iran, for instance, after the um, assassination of Mossadegh decades ago based on a CIA uh, secret plot. More recently, the genocide in Myanmar appears to have been fomented by disinformation spread by secret services to disinform the dominant population there and make them hate their neighbours to influence the Russian influence over the Ukraine for instance these are all going on behind the scenes behind the known politics that these secret influences need to be exposed and really McCoy and Luke Harding in his book about Edward Snowden highlight the fact that we're in a place where these forces need to be brought under control the way that they're being brought under control of course is that the balance of power in the world is actually shifting from the periphery the americas australia northern europe to the center of the world as mccoy describes it which is the pivot which is um the great land mass of russia china and southeast asia where the geopolitics based on the geography the real geography of the world is um, being played out because um America's influence and its global empire are gradually uh, declining and being dismantled. And we need to, I think, um, take a new view about Australia's relationship then with the USA. We need to see that we too are on the periphery, that uh, the power in the world is going to reside in the landmass of Asia and Eastern Europe and uh, and the Middle East and that uh, we need to realign and reorient our future as well in line with that and not just be cowering under the American nuclear umbrella.
1: And that's Bob Phelps from Genetics Network.
3: I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book.
4: Hey there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kildare. Why don't you come on down do the Google thing? Check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us help you look after the planet. And by the way, don't forget to support 3CR. What do Alice Walker, author,
1: novelist... Pulitzer Prize winner, George Galloway, writer, former Member of Parliament, Alan Pape, from the University of Exeter, Tarek Ali, writer and public intellect, and Dr Tim Anderson, activist, senior lecturer at the University of Sydney, have in common. They've all been under pressure to either be fired from their employment, had careers destroyed, or in some cases been threatened the Obstensible Justification. It's commonly known as the Palestinian Exception. I asked him to explain what is meant by the Palestine Exception.
6: Well, I think it's just because the Zionist campaign to link the idea of anti-Semitism, which is a European term, by the way, because Jewish people were considered Semites historically in Europe and discriminated against. But in the Middle East, people include Arabs, which is a much bigger group than Jewish people, and North Africans and so on. So it doesn't really make much sense in the Middle East context. But the Zionist campaign was to link the idea of anti-Jewish racism to criticism of Israel, and so therefore somehow ban criticism of Israel. And it's been quite effective in many respects. I mean, even sections of the left in Germany, for example, now consider it racist to... Criticize Israel or even say something in support of indigenous Palestinians, which is quite extraordinary. You may know that there's a worldwide campaign going on, for example, attempts to ban by law the advocacy of the boycott campaign against Israel in the US. Um, it's still going through the Congress at the moment. But the idea of a Palestinian exception is to say that it's really just another way of saying that criticism of the state of Israel, the apartheid state of Israel, is banned criticism of the the colony in Palestine is banned in an unusual way because any other state is subject to criticism, obviously.
1: And how many countries he- adhere to this so-called Palestine exception?
6: It's not that it's a formal agreement. It's just that there is this campaign. Uh, it's been particularly strong in the in the traditional sponsors of Israel, that is to say, Britain, which first created the idea of the zionist colony in palestine and france which supported it as a colonial power also in, in syria for example and in lebanon and uh the u.s which assumed took over really if you like the, the patron role from france and and britain so it's strongest in those in those three states
1: i've named a couple of the targets in the introduction including yourself how many others have there- been identified and what, what sort of threats or or whatever has been labeled against them
6: i think that the most prominent one who's been targeted by zionists the most prominent academic has been this mark lamont hill in the u.s who who's an academic a young younger academic who had a position or some sort of commentary role in cnn and cnn got rid of him after he said some sympathetic thing to Palestinian about palestinian people position at the university apparently is not under threat historically you've got characters like norman finkelstein who was discriminated against in the past and and denied positions at universities in the past because of his very strong uh, position on palestine israel in this country in australia we've got uh, a couple of examples too there was a woman sandra nasser i believe at the university of western australia who was attacked um, a couple of years back also um a man in an Australian who was in the University of Auckland who was squeezed out of his job a couple of years back too, Scott Pointing. So it's it's fairly widespread. There's a fairly systematic campaign to attack academics who are sympathetic to Palestine, critical of Israel.
1: Mainly academics, but there's also people in the media.
6: In the media as well it's just that at the academic level I guess it attracts a special sort of attention because there has been this assumption that there is an academic freedom indeed that part of the ethos of Western education Western higher education and universities has been academic freedom so I guess it's been shocking to people to see university administrations being herded into this sort of um, go along with this campaign and try and ban the criticism of Israel
1: Can we focus first on the university administration at the University of Sydney, this is not the first time that academics have been challenged and well, put in the limelight.
6: In recent years I suppose the most um, famous case in recent years at the University of Sydney was the case of Jake Lynch he was taken to the Human Rights Commission on alleged racial discrimination for refusing to host a representative of an Israeli university and that was strange sort of case it failed in the end that is to say the the israeli linked legal body failed to try to find any sort of racial discrimination against jake lynch but while it was going on the university was pretty keen to distance themselves from associate professor jake lynch who was head of uh, a center for peace and conflict studies at that stage that center since folded but so the university really was uncomfortable with that and went out of its way to say that they had relationships with Israeli institutions in other areas. Uh, On the one hand, they didn't really intervene against Jake Lynch, but they were uncomfortable with his position. That was the most prominent part of it. I mean, you've had a a mini-scandal recently, too, that students discovered that the Chancellor of the university, um, Belinda Hutchinson, is the chair of Thales Australia, a large arms company, and there was... um, degree of protest and, and publicity about that role there and the potential conflict of interest because the University did not in fact sign a MOU with Thales during the term when the person who was the Chancellor was also head of this major arms company in Australia. So there's been attention from time to time to the role of management in, in terms of fomenting and supporting the, the wars in the Middle East.
1: And also prior to Jake there was Stuart Rees and the Sydney Peace Prize allocation to a Palestinian and he was threatened with losing all his funding over that.
6: That's true. The Sydney Peace Foundation, I believe, is a little bit apart from the university, but it's, it was linked to the university. And I think you're thinking of Hanan Ashrawi when I they do. gave a, an award to Hanana Ashrawi some years back. Um, uh, there, there are always these sorts of threats appear from the defender or the Israel lobby, we could say people in the Israel lobby and there's quite a lot of them in Australia and uh, often they come to nothing basically but uh, they make these sorts of threats. In the past I think universities have resisted these sorts of threats and that's what makes I suppose the case against me unusual on this occasion specifically because of lobbying by uh, pro-Israel individuals and media they've acted against me but they're constantly under this sort of pressure.
1: And who are those individuals?
6: Two media groups in particular, the News Corp, the Murdoch media, which is very closely linked to Israel. You, you may know that Rupert Murdoch is, on the one hand, in fairly heavily invested in Israel, but also uh, the, the probably the most decorated non-Jewish person by Israel in recent years. And Channel Seven, the Seven Media West Group, is linked to Caterpillar, which um, is an important player in Israel involved in the demolitions of Palestinian homes. So Channel 7 and News Corp have been going for me for a couple of years and then some some individuals linked to Jewish organisations that are strongly committed to Israel have joined in and been lobbying behind the scenes to try and squeeze me out.
1: I suppose that some journalists and academics are intimidated in a sense by what might happen to them and that makes them sort of toe the line
6: yes exactly i think the the major effect of of this sort of pressure is to intimidate and to make um individuals as you say journalists or academics self-censor not not get into areas where they know there's going to be a reaction i think that's the that's the purpose of the the barking if you like the dogs barking all the time about don't don't go near israel we will call you an anti-semite but it does intimidate some people, and um, that's the desired effect.
1: What do you know about how people in other countries and also here fight back against this?
6: At the moment, there is a certain degree of coordinated response. There's a group in the U.S. that has been involved in solidarity with Latin America and um, and Palestine, and they've started to link those cases. There is a statement which links my case with that of Mark Lamontil and Norman Finkelstein and... There are sign-on letters from prominent persons to look at it, the, the, the phenomenon from an international point of view. That We have on the one hand the, the conflict in Palestine is something that really taints the whole region, but it also flows across to a series of scandals, for example, in the U.S., which of course is the major patron of the Zionist state, to try and ban any mobilization or advocacy of a boycott against Israel. And you might have seen more recently too that there are laws in the U.S. states to try and force public servants to declare loyalty to Israel as a condition of their employment in in U.S. states. So some extraordinary extraordinary developments which are being talked about and resisted um, on the ground.
1: Looking at BDS, it of course comes from the South African experience many years ago was there such a campaign then as there is now, with this BDS focusing on Israel?
6: You mean the, the boycott against South Africa, yeah. apartheid South Africa? Yeah. Of course, that was um, began in the 70s really, but it gained some momentum in the 80s, and it was. Um, it's a good parallel because there are many similarities with the South African case and apartheid Israel, not least the fact that there's a lot of strong. South African organisations now which are, have joined in the boycott and are making that comparison and in, in some ways saying it's a, it's a worse type of apartheid there. But with um, the case of South Africa, I remember from the mid-80s, there was this boycott campaign, but because the US and Britain were resolutely supporting South Africa at the time, and you might recall that it was also because it wasn't just South Africa, there was Namibia, there was Angola, there was the Cuban... Cuban and Russian presence in Angola and there was a whole front of the Cold War at that time. Because of that there was an argument from many liberals that said, Well, this boycott campaign can't go anywhere because, you know, the the British Commonwealth can't do anything because Margaret Thatcher won't support it and Ronald Reagan won't support it. But in actual fact there was some very rapid progress in the in the late eighties, which led to the collapse of apartheid South Africa, the dismantling of a very powerful state which had access to nuclear weapons and people thought that there was no chance of of the the collapse of that system, but indeed it did collapse.
1: And was it attacked in a similar way to how it's been attacked now, it focuses on Israel? Was there a backlash against the people who were promoting the boycott?
6: Yes, to some extent. I mean, really, for example, the, the former Prime Minister John Howard, who wasn't the Prime Minister back there, and uh, a number of broadcasters were very firm supporters of apartheid South Africa, and they declared Nelson Mandela, who was in jail at the time, as a terrorist. So there was an attempt to brand and marginalize people who boycotted South Africa as associates of terrorism. Um, so there was that type of. But it wasn't exactly the same because, of course, you have these historical differences that the Zionists in support of Israel now claim that they are the advocates of anti-racism and the people that are criticizing Israel are themselves racist So, so there are some different characteristics to the current campaign.
1: Focus on your particular case Tim just go back to December and when you were told that you were suspended.
6: So this was the culmination of about 18 months of mostly private correspondence between management and myself. I call it a campaign of censorship or attempted censorship, which I had resisted from the beginning. I didn't accept that they had the authority to tell me what to say and what not to say in public, given that I was not abusive, I wasn't abusing people or harassing them. Now, we have some rules at the university through the Enterprise Agreement, which form industrial law at the university, which specifically supports the right of academic freedom specifically in controversial cases because in a controversial case there's always going to be someone who complains or is offended or whatever so there is a specific formulation of academic freedom which says that in controversial areas uh, academics can speak freely provided that they do not harass or intimidate people now that sets a high sort of benchmark for censorship if you like that people shouldn't be disciplined unless they get into the areas of harassment and intimidation. I put it a little bit wider than that, and I said um, to the management, I said, look, I don't engage in abuse, but I'm going to engage in criticism, and it might be harsh criticism, of individual statements, particularly by journalists. That's how it began. So there was 18 months of really me uh, having an argument with managers over the principles to be used in terms of their authority to intervene. I was saying, no, you can't intervene and say this is... Intemperate or offensive. Uh, You have to look at the principles that that we have established. So when it finally came to the point of the Provost Stephen Garden saying, Well, you were now expelled from the university pending a review, you know, that there was really many months of disagreement over what he was really entitled to do in terms of censoring my public statements.
1: How many other people have had such a pronouncement?
6: There are some other cases, but not the same. Uh, for example, there's been attempts to suppress some research, for example, in recent times that I'm aware of, but not in this form. I mean, specifically what they have gone for me over in 2018 were two posts, which I both consider rather innocent and, in fact, rather valuable posts, um, both to do with Palestine and Israel. In 2017, it was more to do with Syria. In 2018, it was to do with Palestine and Israel linked to the fact that I published a long article on Palestine and um, uh, there'd been a certain amount of publicity over that. So really, um, for me, the management went much too far in trying to hose down the publicity that arose as a result of the Israel lobby. The Israel lobby was able to use the corporate media. They were able to write letters to the managers and the managers wanted to... It down. So, in effect, they go to the managers to act against me. They were trying to wedge the, the university against someone they saw as a political opponent.
1: What is the process now?
6: The process now is that there is an internal review of decisions like this, or in this case, a decision of misconduct. And it's a panel which um, is created by the university in its agreement with the union, with the academics union, the NTU, where you have one management rep, one union rep, and an independent chair that reviews the decision and reports back to management. They don't really have any power, but um, they are influential because management will, be, will face some problems if they reject the, the recommendations of, of this panel. So the matter could be resolved as a, as a result of this panel, which sits later this month. Uh, towards the end of January. If it isn't resolved in that way, or let's say if it isn't resolved to my satisfaction, I have the option of going to a Fair Work Tribunal which looks at unfair dismissals, and then there's principles of law apply there.
1: Who chooses the independent chair?
6: Uh, It's an agreement between the union and the management, um, and the management in this case nominated a person who's a former industrial relations commissioner, and the union's happy with her
1: you're being fully supported by the union
6: the union has given me quite strong support i wouldn't say it's it's as a matter of policy but the union supported me and the people within the union organized this petition of academics i think almost 80 of them have signed a petition um, calling for my reinstatement
1: and if you go to the tribunal does that cost you or is that free
6: Uh, well it depends you know if you start paying for lawyers there's no end to it is there yes in this case, I'm representing myself because I've got a little bit of experience with legal processes.
1: And your financial situation with the university, you're still being paid at the moment?
6: It's not entirely clear because they've said they're going to put me on leave without pay when the appeal process kicks in. But, of course, if I win, I get back pay there, so it's not something that really bothers
1: me. But either way, Tim, it's not going to stop you supporting Palestine?
6: No, no, it's not going to shut me up at all, really, it's some... Um, The question is they're trying to, I suppose the the lobbyists behind this are trying to deny a platform to me to to try and de-link the relationship that I have with the university to speak, but it doesn't affect what I'm doing and really what the university has been saying for the last 18 months hasn't affect what I've done either. I am pretty clear on the principles I use for public comment. As I said, I don't abuse people, I don't gratuitously criticise people, but I've made a practice of criticising, for example, journalists that spread war propaganda, that spread false war propaganda, which is itself, by, what, by the way, an international crime, you know, to spread propaganda for war, as they have done with the wars in Iraq and Syria and, and Palestine. So I'm very clear on those sorts of principles, and I'm not changing my, my position.
1: Just stay on Syria for a few minutes, Trump seems to be saying that he's going to pull troops out. Others in the administration say, no, that's a bad idea. Where do you believe that will go?
6: I think that there's quite a good article, which I posted today, from Elijah Magnia, who's a journalist based in the, in the, Gulf, in the Persian Gulf, um, that says that uh, Trump is determined to pull out of Syria, but he's been slowed down by other players in the state. Trump clearly doesn't run the presidency by himself. Um, I don't think his decision has been reversed, it's just that they've slowed him down and there are now other players there, like Bolton, who is running into trouble with with the the, the leader of Turkey, uh, Mr Erdogan, over, over his statements there. But I think that Trump has made it very clear that he wants to pull out and he's just been delayed somewhat there. This year, Magnier says in his article, and I agree with him, that... The, there's going to be further progress in Syria that they'll take back the northeast of Syria, the eastern part of Syria also, and um, the, the final operation to clear out the, the Al Qaeda groups in Idlib will will proceed.
1: Why does Trump want to pull out?
6: Really, the the strategic reason behind having U.S. troop placements, um, and you notice that they're not—it's not just that they're in Syria; they're on the border of. Iraq and Syria in particular to try and prevent the relationship, the, the smooth relationship between, or the, the, the developing relationship between Syria and Baghdad and Iraq and Iran, the, the alliance between those groups, which has always been the target of the imperial powers in that region, to try and prevent a strong alliance between the Arab states and, and Iran. That's why they position positioned themselves on the border, that's why they've tried to balkanize or fragment iraq and balkanize or fragment syria to try and break down that alliance which is really in competition with their alliance which is effectively based on israel the the european colony in palestine and saudi arabia the sectarian forces have try and destabilize the entire region i mean the entire region is affected by the conflict in palestine and this is the series of wars we've seen there are attempts to try and Break down or weaken that, that alliance that's against um, uh, the the colony in Palestine.
1: And what's been the reaction by Israel to Trump's announcements? Well,
6: Israel's not happy, um, but they don't really. They're a small player. Really, they're very dependent, highly dependent on U.S. patronage. And um, you know, they've been crying wolf against Iran for for many many years now. It goes back to more than a decade. Um, they've been serious flashpoints and the threat of war, serious war, even nuclear war, over Iran and its supposed weapons uh, development, as they did against Iraq, basically. But Iran's a much bigger player than Iraq, and Iran's much more important in the region. Um, Maybe a lot of people don't appreciate that strategically Iran is a powerful, independent country. Whatever you think of uh, their Islamic system of government, Uh, it's a non-sectarian religious order. Semi religious order, and it's an independent locus of power in the region which prevents U.S. domination of the region. That's why there's such hysteria. So the the leaders in Israel are are carrying on about Iran, and they don't like the fact that the U.S. is uh, that Trump is pulling out, but uh, they have to deal with it basically. We saw that with the jihadist groups in the south of Syria once Trump said he was no longer. They were on their own. He wasn't going to support the, the Al-Qaeda groups in the south of Syria. Israel immediately pulled its head in there and there was a very quick uh, liberation of that region on the Jordanian border, on the on the Palestinian border too.
1: What about the ISIS combatants that are in the area? Is it in the north of Syria? What's going to happen with them?
6: So they've really existed. They've continued to exist in small pockets. I mean, they were driven out more than a year ago they were driven out of the major cities in syria and iraq but they still exist in in small pockets in those desert areas in the desert border areas the same areas that are occupied by the u.s military al-tans on the border of jordan iraq and syria and on the eastern euphrates in those areas where the u.s has occupied isis persists because isis is a creature of the U.S., sponsored by Saudi Arabia. Their ideology is the same as Saudi Arabia. That's where they've got their arms from, all of their arms, American, Israeli and, and some European. It's been an open secret that ISIS is a cat's paw of the U.S., basically, to destabilise those countries and to try and weaken them. While they've been defeated, um, the direct occupation by U.S. forces east of the Euphrates in the northeast of Syria and the south of Syria and uh, also in Iraq, where there's a similar sort of polemic going on now you notice that the security forces in iraq are now starting to threaten the u.s. because they they see the u.s. as a direct threat to their security and maintaining safe havens for terrorist groups in parts of for example the western part the al-anbar province in iraq for example so once the u.s. pulls out cleaning up those groups is much easier you then
5: f- still have
6: the the question of turkey's relationship with the al-qaeda groups in italy but basically Once the U.S. withdraws from Syria, once if the Iraqi state has the political will to push them out of Iraq, we'll see a rapid dissolution of those groups.
1: Just finally, Tim, the closer establishment between the Arab states and Syria.
6: Yes, that's a that's a. It seems, in one sense, a surprising thing that even Saudi Arabia now, the the head of intelligence. um, one of the senior intelligence heads, let's say, from Syria, Major General Mark Luf, was recently in Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia has been the key enemy, the key regional enemy with Israel against Syria. But even uh, to that extent, the Saudis seem to be having a diplomatic door with Syria at the moment. This follows the reopening of embassies of the United Arab Emirates, and which also sponsored jihadist groups in Syria and Kuwait, which also sponsored jihadist groups in Syria. They have reopened their embassies in Syria. There is a concerted move led by Egypt and Lebanon, which didn't have the same involvement with um, whatever you think of the, the president of Egypt. He, he wasn't involved against Syria in the way that the Gulf monarchies were. But all of those groups now, um, there's, a, there's a very rapid turnaround and uh, attempts to draw Syria back into the Arab League. This may not work, really, because the question of whether the Arab League has any credibility left is, is an open question. They, after all, major players in the Arab League conspired against Libya and then against Syria, but there is this rush of Gulf monarchies to re-establish relations with Syria, to try and reposition themselves, to try and regain some sort of influence. How the Syrian government is going to respond to that after so many years of them sending these, um, financing and arming these jihadist groups against Syria? remains to be seen but there's a very rapid turnaround going on now at a diplomatic level in in the in the middle east region
1: well not only the syrian government surely but the people of syria who've borne the brunt of this war
6: yes exactly there's a a, a huge amount of hostility there's probably even a, a popular reaction in syria at the moment against their intelligence leaders going and talking to the saudis at all but of course diplomacy is something that that goes on at a at a different sort of level isn't it um it's something that We see, for example, in Iran, which has maintained its um, relationships with um, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is extremely anti-Shia, and with Turkey. But nevertheless, at a level of diplomacy, some uh, distasteful relations are necessary sometimes. You have to talk to your enemies in in diplomacy. It's often more important than talking to your
1: friends. And thanks to Dr. Tim Anderson, who is in your lecture, I think. University of Sydney suspended at the moment but um hopefully not for long that's about it for my first Tuesday home time for 2019 done by law is coming up in about one and a half minutes time so I'll say goodbye now and um back in a week's time bye then